So I hear what you're saying, but you can highly stylize a desktop without changing the way you interface with it and changing how you actually configure things and how you interact with Windows and all that. I mean, if you go on, you know, Google Images or wherever, and you just search for Linux desktop and you look at a picture, I would say more often than not, you can look at the picture and immediately know what distribution it is because SUSE has a look to it. Fedora has a look to it. Um, Ubuntu has a look to it. Arch. Yes, we know. You can instantly tell when someone is running an Arch desktop. <laughs> oh, there was like a series of five emotions that ran across his face before we decided yeah. on those words. <laughs> So, Jeff, we had a conversation in our Telegram Matrix channels about uh, interfaces, and it, it was kind of framed around the discussion of desktops and how, how, how do I put this lightly without totally going off the rail initially? No, go ahead. Go off the rail. That's what we do. About the evolution of the desktop. Ah. And yes. I had some opinions as as it were about <laughs> that concept and right because i find the, the notion itself interesting uh, pulling back from the actual details of what should the desktop evolve to uh, my initial go-to is why does it need to the, the yeah. typical response to that question is well because we've been using basically the same thing forever it's it's the same process, it's the same you know, layout and all that. And that's true, but I don't see that that is a problem. Uh, hammers haven't really evolved much in their design for, uh, I'd say, a couple thousand years, maybe. Uh, there's a reason why. Because they're damn effective at what they do. And they don't need to be reimagined. Well, you don't want, like, a three-headed hammer? I mean, could be really neat. Have you ever tried a three-headed uh, hammer before? No, but I'm pretty sure that we have designed towards uh, an ideal. I don't know if designed towards. Yeah, that's that's the best way to say it. We've designed towards the ideal for its purpose. Okay. Still, three headed hammer. Don't don't sleep on that. Could be right. cool. Now, we do have different types of hammers, so like there are different use cases, and we have you know slightly different hammers. But if you take all of those hammers and line them up. They all basically look the same. They all operate the same because they're hammers. Mm -hmm. Just a different scale, right? No, a different scale, different size, different shape. But realistically, they all are used the same exact way. Whereas when this discussion comes up with desktops, it always comes up from that it needs to be kind of reimagined, redesigned. Uh, a perfect example of this would be GNOME. Um, though I don't actually think GNOME is as revolutionary as people think. Uh, because to me, GNOME is just, we're trying to copy Mac OS. And I realize that that's kind of a bold statement, and a lot of people disagree with that. But I find more and more as time goes by, it's getting closer and closer. Maybe not in the, the exact graphical look, but in the functionality and how it operates. And the thing I always kind of come back to is, what is the purpose of the desktop? Like, let's, let's start there. That's a good question. For you, yep. what 
why a desktop? Why does this even exist? What is it for? What does it do? Good question. For me, honestly, I don't really need a desktop, to be honest. So uh, maybe I'm not the best person to answer this question, but I'll, I'll try and put myself into a more standard role. The desktop is the one place that you go to interact with everything, right? It's got some... Sure, we can go to the command line and, and manipulate files in there, but you can also click, right? And a lot of people, especially those that aren't comfortable with the command line, they don't want to go and type things to move stuff around. If anything, it's kind of threatening. So they don't. So I'm thinking back to... I always used very lightweight desktops. I think the heaviest that I ever used was XFCE. I had a couple of cool tools. Thuner was a pretty good file browser and a couple other ones. But it deliberately was not integrated with everything. So it seems like part of the role of the desktop is to integrate all these different pieces together into one unified experience, which is what I think a lot of people want. I don't want to have to learn nine different tools. I learn one tool, and they're all kind of from the same family. And most people prefer that. Past that, so let me let me go side rant into what KDE here. KDE likes to, to loop everything in together and it would support for all these different protocols and all this and that. And from your Conqueror browser or whatever the one it was for looking at files. Actually, I think it was the same one, wasn't it? You looked at browsers and you looked at files from the same one back in the aughts or something. I seem to recall that. And I hated that because that meant there was lots of things it was looped into, lots of things that could potentially go wrong. And also, if you were trying to compile it, there was lots of dependencies. And I, I hated that. So I think the things that I dislike about the desktop are probably probably what people are looking for in a desktop. They want that connectedness. They want that one experience. So for me, I look at the desktop as it is a tool to run applications, to launch things, to set up. So when I sit down, I have something to look at. I have some things to click. You know, I have a file manager, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, the desktop is not really an application. It is simply, it's like the desk in my office that I put stuff on. I'm not operating the desk. I'm operating with the things on the desk. I'm using the things on the desk and the desk is just happens to be where everything resides. Uh, but the desk itself is not a feature. Like it's just, it's a desk. But you raise a good um, point here. You can have desks that do lots of additional things. Well, to go back 25 years, right? Gaming PCs were uncommon, but starting to gain popularity. I mean, Doom had come out and uh, Quake was, I think Quake was 96 or 97, somewhere there. So we're actually starting to see a birth of the gaming culture, right? And I remember seeing a picture of some guy's desk and he had installed a hook for his headset right above where his tower was residing. And I was like, dang, that's a really good idea. I should do that. And so that uh, to illustrate a minor point here that the desk can inv can evolve your way of interacting with the things on the desk, right? Yeah, I'm not denying that. I think that that is just simply a using your, your space and your environment the most efficiently. But it still, at the end of the day, serves its primary function, that it is simply there to help you do things better. You're not interacting, like, you are interacting directly with the desk, but you're not doing it because you like interacting with your desk. The desk helps you interact and do other things on the desk. So maybe another analogy would be like your monitor. You're technically interacting directly with your monitor. 
but its job is to display whatever it's told to display. The fact that it has a cool mode where it does plasma light-ups and woo, party mode or whatever, that doesn't matter. I don't care about that. Well, that could be entertaining. Its goal, its, its design is to display whatever it's given. And there are some utilitarian choices you can make in there. Like this one has two inputs, so that supports old school inputs or whatever. There's lots of things you can do, but in the end of the day, it's just, it's just a screen. But people really care about their screens very deeply. They do. And again, you know, I'm not saying that people can't have desktop preferences, but like to go to go back to your KDE thing, I prefer KDE over GNOME, but I still don't like KDE because it's so massive. <laughs> because everything yes. is built together. Where is KDE Lite, so to speak, which is literally just the window management and maybe some basic configuration for theming, and then that's it. Like, stop, full stop. Don't go it any further. Exist. There is no such thing. Have all your applications. You can still make those and you can still have them. So there's a meta package which installs everything. But give me the baseline. Instead, they decided, well, no, everything is going to rely on the same library. And every utility that's a KDE utility is going to need that library. So when you go to build something like one KDE application, you need everything. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because it's, it's tightly integrated. And this, this gets worse with GNOME. Not necessarily in size way, but in like function way. Now, this is this is a little dated. I think this example that I'm going to bring up is from 2014, maybe 15. I don't know. So this may have changed. Since it's then. actually doing pretty well for us. We tend to go back to like earlier than that. Yeah, yeah. It's still pretty yeah. recent. Polari was an IRC client and it was made for GNOME. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I was using Fedora on my laptop at the time. Let me let me check this IRC client out. So I install it and I go to I go to use it and I go to add. I'm like, let me, let me add a server. And, you know, I click the thing to join and. Well, it didn't have the SSL. It just had like the basic thing. And I was like, well, I want to add the SSL ports for, for the server. And, oh, well, you, you can't. And I dug into this. Keep in mind, because it's GNOME, the top bar is contextual. So it's you always have to go up there to, to get to things. For, and I'll get on that mm. rant because that's another one. <laughs> that's coming but, soon. So I went through everything and I could not find where it is you can actually set a new server. So I file a bug ticket because to me, this is a bug. I'm using the application and I can't add a server with a custom port that I want. I then get a reply on the ticket going, well, yeah, you have to do that in GNOME settings. And it's like, whoa, what? Mm -hmm. I have to open up another program to be able to configure the program I'm in. Some engineers were turned loose on data normalizations as well. We should only have it in one spot and the right spot for it so it can be portable is your profile, right? But that's And I understand this, much. however- Way too much. That means the application is now integrated with the desktop and the application cannot stand. I mean, maybe it can stand alone. I don't know. I don't know what happens if you try to install Polari on another one, another desktop. I don't know. You still get 90% of the maybe KDE there's some, libs because it does everything. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe there's some backup mode where then if you don't have GNOME, then, you know, it can, it can use another window that magically is available. Or, yeah, GNOME, excuse me. But it, it, it really... It really like drove home the idea of the, the developers of, of the GNOME desktop were not looking at the desktop as a thing you run applications in. The desktop was what you worked with. The desktop, in a way, was an operating environment. It wasn't like, I use this thing to load applications. It's, I use this thing, and applications happen to work inside it. It kind of made me feel like this is like an applications-as-a-service thing. And that feels really dirty when I think about mm. that. And I almost want to go take a shower. You're not wrong. Because for the desktop, it's like, get your grubby little hands off my application. 
You are what I use to start my applications. My applications, if I want to change something in them, I shouldn't have to go to a configuration option in my desktop to change something in an application. I 100% agree. You know, like I was saying earlier, the, the data normalization, there's a lot of times when engineers apply their engineering brains to what are user interface dynamics, I guess is the right way to put it. And they don't always result in a good product. In fact, they often don't, I would say. You need, really need designers in there too if you're going to have something. I think, especially maybe in earlier days, the open source movements surrounding the major desktop environments were all staffed with engineers and very few designers. And so a lot of engineering decisions were made and the softwares were built around those engineering decisions. I think somewhere like 05, 06, people were like, wait a second, you know, if we want this to really be the year of the, of the Linux desktop, which has happened every year since like 2003 or something, we really have to get some designers in here that know what the heck the users want because apparently we're making interfaces that the users don't care for. So they started pulling stuff in. And I, I loved some of the, the results of that, uh, like a barrel that came out, Compiz Fusion or whatever it was called was really cool. And so we started paying more attention to what we thought users would like. And then that started off some kind of arms race to constantly be updated to the next thing that the user wants or what we think the user wants. You know, Apple's certainly getting in the mix there. It does not help anything at all because they are very opinionated about what the user wants. And often they're not right or not wrong they're usually they they hit that first standard deviation of what a user wants pretty well generally but there's a whole lot of users that are outside the first standard deviation especially in the open source world so you have to build something they were they were building something they expected people to appreciate and i don't know that i ever did and i don't know that people that were used to like windows ever did so i don't know what audience they were building for so the thing about mac os's influence on linux that annoys me is Mac OS's design philosophy, like they have a lot of good ideas. However, they also are extraordinarily heavy handed in that when they make a decision, you're going to use it because you don't have a choice. And like you said, they get that first step right. And then they take like two or three more steps. And if you don't like those extra two or three steps, well, tough because they've taken them. And th the problem is, is because people do like most of what they do, they then deal with all those other things till those other things become expected. Like, I'm sorry, I, I know there are people that think Miller Columns in a file manager is like the greatest thing in the world. I don't understand these people. As far as I'm concerned, they should all be committed to an institution. <laughs> I, I don't, I just don't know how that is an efficient use of space for what you're doing. And that also goes for the top bar. All those, I don't think those people are as anywhere near as insane. But the top bar is a great idea if you're using one application and you're using it full screen. It makes sense. Save yourself the real estate, put the menu bar up in the top bar, great. But the moment you're not running full screen, the moment you're running two applications, the moment you're running multiple monitors with multiple applications, that paradigm sucks. Yeah. Because... You want to do something. I can't go directly from one application to the menu bar of another application. I have to go from application to application, top bar, then back to other application in the top bar, then to other application in top bar, because th there's no way to dig directly into the options of each window. They've designed it so that you focus on one thing. And multitasking doesn't really come into play. And if you're trying to configure things, you're trying to do stuff between multiple applications, 
that's adding an extra step every time you want to do something. So recall also in earlier times, I don't remember that uh, Linux desktops would do focus follows mouse. Do you remember those days? You could actually kind mm -hmm. of you could kind of trick it depending on which desktop environment you're using. You'd move your mouse over to the background application and the menu would change and then you could like alt tab or something and the the process that was technically focused in the front would remain in focus, but you could kind of go back and forth. You touch the mouse it would it would hop back again. There were ways around it, right? But I think so to rant on Apple again. I've never cared for how they do this. Everything must be doable through the menu. There are no hidden options, no anything. Now there's a certain charm to that. You will always be able to get to the menu somewhere as long as you allow, say, accessibility needing people to maneuver without a mouse. You could, like, tab through stuff. Theoretically, you should be able to do every function in a program or raise every modal or every window or every whatever from the menu. I like that, but it really cramps a lot of style on some things. Like, it doesn't make much sense for Photoshop, who's got 9 million buttons that each one of those should be accessible from a menu, right? It's just, that's just the nature of the program you're using, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think, um, I don't recall the time when, did KDE go hardcore into that, and it was all menu only? Was, or was it, uh, like, did they follow that design characteristic too? I don't believe so, because I know KDE 3 definitely didn't. KDE 4 was just KDE 3 with their kind of their weird attempt at going 3D Aqua-E, but not really. Like, it was this weird blend of, like, Windows and Mac that they tried to meet in the middle, and it just felt wrong on both sides. Um, well, I mean, it wasn't the worst desktop in the world, but I, I wouldn't have called it the best either. Um, and then with 5, they've tried to just go flat everything, which... The whole flat design aesthetic is another is another rant for another day because that could take a while. Yeah, that's that. There's a cycle every three to five years of what the common UI is. You know, for twelve years ago we had rounded buttons, and then some other there was terms for it. I've never been a designer, and I've never really followed that stuff, so I don't know the terms. But I would hear them occasionally, and then they went to this like super flat. And I think some of it was following what the frameworks, the the design frameworks were good at. There's also like Google has decided that all of their applications are now going to use this flat style. I don't actually know what the term is. Yeah, I blame I blame Google for most of it because they really push that with their material design. That's what the material design. And, thank you. Yeah. And if you actually if you go back and look at the original material design examples, actually not that bad, at least from what I remember and what I looked at a couple of weeks ago when I was digging around for it. If you compare that material design to today's material design, they're, they're very different things. And the one big issue that I've had with it is in it, in the attempt to flatten everything, they flattened it too far and they took away contextual information that previously existed, which was really helpful when you're using something that's a visual medium. Agreed. You know, when you compress everything down, you, well, guess what? You've lost all the variability and the gradient of options and, and looks and styles of everything between those you know, what you had and now what you have. So I think, though, that material design was partly designed to be able to make interfaces that would work for both a mouse and a finger touching on a device. That was one of its parameters, so, I believe. Yeah, but here then comes the problem of, it's the, it's the age-old dilemma of when you try to optimize for everything, you optimize for nothing. Because on a phone, you have limited size. And your fingers also have a consistent size. 
And the ratio between the size of your finger when you're touching the screen and the screen itself is extraordinarily large compared to a laptop or a desktop. So you end up with things that are designed for the mobile having ton of a ton of room around the button or whatever, because there has to be, because your finger is so big on the screen, which is simultaneously funny because then they do other things. Like for instance, when you're in the, uh, when you're in the search bar, um, and I am running an older version of Android, so hopefully this has changed, but when you click on the, uh, in a search bar, you know, obviously it will extend off and you have to get to the end. Well, when you get to the end at the very end is either the search button or an X to clear or, or whatever. And if you want to instead put the cursor so you can type or delete or whatever at the end of that last character, you have like three pixels to do it. So you're using your <laughs> finger to try to hit this three pixel space without either searching for what's in the bar, clearing it all out. Or, and it's like, hold on a second. You've made every button gigantic because everything needs to have plenty of white space and you don't want to have any interactions. And then you're giving me three freaking pixels wide to be able to click to remove the last word from what's in that button. I have this problem all the time, literally all the time. It's not just your old version of Android. I think. And the yeah. thing is, the thing is, is if you actually go in and look, the buffer that they have for the actual UI elements is like 20 effing pixels. But the space that they reserve because of the different padding on each individual element, the space that's actually reserved for you to click in ends up being three, even though there's actually like 20 there. So there's, there's some because aspect also. the text. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, some aspect also of there's a hinting algorithm or some kind for where on the screen you're pressing. And, you know, because not everybody's as accurate. And so it's try, I think there's some degree of trying to learn how you tend to press the screen. With what's your unique something? And so when you press here, you actually meant to press four pixels down and 11 left or something because you happen to touch with your right top of your finger, whatever. And there's some, I know different applications in Android do this differently or they have their own hinting profiles or something. I don't quite know how it works, but I can tell definitely some applications I have no problem selecting that little three pixel thing and others, like I can't for the life of me get the freaking thing right where it needs to be between the period and the letter. It just won't do it. It just won't do it. And then it doesn't want to show me the little pop-up I can drag either. I'm like, just show me that. Yeah, Sorry. and the other problem is, depending on which phone you have, that's going to change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like, so my Motorola phone is like, I think the screen is like, I don't know, it's like 1700 by 700 maybe? I, I, don't, I don't know. Whereas my old BlackBerry Brief, this is a 2K screen. So trying to hit three pixels wide on a 2K screen is virtually impossible. Is impossible. And, you know, we can't have styluses anymore because the design police decided that styluses are no longer cool and you're not allowed to have them, which the the denser things get on a phone. I don't like, can we please bring that back? It takes up too much because space that would be really phone. helpful. Like the, the, the cavity where you put the stylus just takes an enormous amount no, of space. No, 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 no. I'm going to disagree. I'm going to disagree for, for two reasons. One, when we had smaller phones, we had styluses. Two... Phones are enormous compared to phones previously that had styluses. Like, yeah, they were thicker, but the size itself was small. If, if I went and got my Palm Trio, which had a stylus and a keyboard, and I brought it and I held it up next to the phone, the phone dwarfs it. There's probably 300% more like front space 
two to three hundred percent more than what the trio had. Well, so the stylus like, went off the side though; it wasn't actually inside the felon. It was no, like, it was actually inside at oh, the really? very edge, oh, at the very side. Right. Yeah, and you had to like with your left hand kind of pull up on the back of it to pull it out. Well, you could just you, yeah, you could use your thumb and you would basically catch the lip of it on the outside and then you would pull it out. And the stylus itself was only like three millimeters wide, so like it wasn't big. And it, like my phone right now, th there is definitely plenty of room that they could have added one and. Okay, it might have added an extra three millimeters of, of width on the phone. Ooh, wow. Well, it's really? Actually like five that's... because you got a millimeter on each side of the cavity it goes in, right? It's five millimeters. Okay, five, five millimeters. That's oh. a big deal in phone design. I'm being facetious, but it's also kind of true. I mean, it was such a big deal that that's one of the reasons that the, the headphone jack is gone. You know, they wanted that space for whatever, they kept compacting down. I think it's a very valid point that you're saying the screen sizes of our phones today is enormous compared to old ones. And I've been wondering, as we progress bigger and bigger and bigger phones, what's going to be the upper limit? There is an upper limit to when it becomes too heavy or too big to manipulate and people don't want it anymore. I noticed that screen size is no longer a main selling point because they're all so stinking big. It's like, well, find the one that fits your hand and that's what you use. It's not that it has more or less pixels. It tends to be. Because they all have a lot of pixels now. Does it have an OLED screen or something else? But the size has become less important. But if it's less important, then why can't we start stealing some space back for something like a stylus, right? Right, and like, why? for a while there, the fetish was, get your phone as thin as possible, as thin as possible, which I found hilarious because people would buy that super, super thin phone and then go get like an OtterBox to put on it, which made it three times thicker. Because it would break like, so easily if they needed the OtterBox or else right. they were throwing away 800 bucks. Why did you buy the slimmest phone so that you had to add an inch around it practically or half an inch around it so that you wouldn't break it. Like at this point, this, the thinness doesn't matter. It's a detriment. And you know, it's a detriment because you're buying something else to fix the detriment. How about the, the Apple, the iPhones that had glass on both sides that tended to crack at the, like, you looked at it wrong and it would crack. Like, well, who thought mm -hmm. that was a good idea? I guess they thought yeah. their glass would be standing up more. They underestimated just how abusive the average user is to their phone. <laughs> They've learned that lesson. For me, I have always wanted like, I have wanted a phone that's designed with the premise that battery life is a killer feature. You can, t like, my, my current Motorola phone is probably, I don't know, maybe seven millimeters thick. Maybe. Go ahead and hit 10. Give me an extra three millimeters of battery space on the entire back. I'm trying to evaluate how big mine is and realizing it doesn't matter because I immediately got a case for it, right? It goes right into a case. Yeah. You could make a phone and make it, think about the old OtterBoxes. Think about how thick they were. Okay, just let's just go with that for as an example. If you made a modern phone that was that thick, think about how much battery you could get into that thing. That would be impressive. You go for like two you days. could run that thing. <laughs> well, no, you could go for more than two days. You could go for easily a week. I mean, my phone can go two, three days. Well, I'm thinking you could do like two whole hours on 5G. I mean, that's really impressive. <laughs> or you could just not use 5G. Well, yeah, you know. around here we don't have much of a choice. Like, I foolishly got a 5G phone this last time. I rode my note as long as I possibly could until it was dead. And then I had to get one, and it was like, oh, it's a 5G. I'm like, great, how do I turn it off? You can't. Oh, great, thank you. Sure enough, it's been nothing but misery. And I know at some point it will get better, right? But some part of this part of our rant feels kind of like, aren't there things that, that corporations could be focusing on? Like you're saying, bigger size for more battery or bringing the stylus back or bring the headphone jack back, all these kind of things that you use to differentiate themselves. 
and they've all been compacted down into the same exact form factor, the exact same style. What the last three or four generations of phones over the last five years, they've inordinately been focused on the camera. And I recognize that a lot of people use their camera phone for everything all the time. I get that. I don't care if I'm able to take photographic quality pictures with my iPhone. And I think it's neat that people can film entire movies on an iPhone, and you wouldn't know. Well, that's actually a relatively cheap way to film a movie, frankly. You know, movie cameras are expensive. I don't use my camera that way. And I, I recognize I'm, I'm unusual in that respect. But for me, the camera that's sticking out, like the, I think the current generation iPhone has like a little square, a rounded rectangle that sticks out. The cameras, there's like four cameras in there or something. And I guess they wanted to make it thicker so they had enough room to actually have some optical glass that they could move around. There's only so much algorithms can do. If you haven't really right, put things in focus. Like, there, there you go. You made the phone. Just make the whole phone that thick and add more battery in. I don't know why they're so focused on the thinness that they could. They made it so thin they couldn't actually realistically take pictures with it, which is one of the main selling features of modern phones is the quality of pictures you can take. How does that mm -hmm. work? What kind of cracked theory do you have that you just threw everything else out in favor of this one thing and you're not even doing that well? What, what the? What this doesn't make any sense. And now you've got people walking around that have phones with tumors on the back because <laughs> the actual functional requirement of the phone is that it needs to be a certain thickness. But instead of just making the whole device that thick and taking advantage of the space that gives you, put more, more powerful hardware in there. Put more battery. There's tons of options you could do to take advantage of that extra two millimeters, millimeter or two of space along the entire back of the phone. We see this, but in instead, everywhere. it's not. Every, not just and phones. I think, right? Corporations are deciding for us what to do. Oh, I think it also comes back to something you said before, which is like, yeah, in the past, engineers kind of led, and now it seems that the designers are. Like everything is design led first, and then engineering is like, well, you know, it also kind of needs to be functional, but really, it's got to look good first. We need a we need something that looks really good. If it doesn't function, it doesn't matter. It's got to look good. That's the way modern music is made. You don't have to be able to sing well. We can auto-tune your voice later. You just got to be pretty, mm -hmm. and you can dance, and you do interviews well, right? You can't be dumb as a box of rocks because that'll show up in interviews. You have to be willing and, and outgoing enough to be on social media all the time, building your brand. Well, okay. I'm going to disagree. Daft Punk proved that you do not have to be attractive or, inter or interact with you know media and fans and any of that. You don't have to do any of that. You can literally be the mystery and people don't care if the music is good. The music was like, good. They literally, they, yeah, but they literally wore robot helmets their entire career and nobody cared. Well, actually people did care. They thought it was awesome. Yes, they thought it but, was awesome. Yes, there were questions about who they were, what they looked like and all that stuff. But that wasn't the most important thing. The, the music was. And when we're designing devices or to bring this back to the desktop, when we're designing desktops, it, it seems like the functionality and the use should come first. Now, I realize that the GNOME developers are going to argue, along with other developers who are in this design aesthetic, that, oh, well, we are improving the design. We're improving the, the usability and the design of the system. But I don't know. There, there's a part of me that feels that all desktop UI designers are just failed philosophy majors. <laughs> don't tell them that. Oops, I guess you just did. You know, we need to re-envision and recontextualize re the desktop paradigm. No, we don't. You know, I need to run LibreOffice. I need to run an IDE, a browser, an IRC client. I need to run a terminal. What I don't need 
is to nasal gaze and ponder of how the old ways of thinking about desktop interaction is holding us back. And, and I actually heard a UI developer say that last line. Oh, what, say, whoa, really? That, that's the kind of thing that you the think old to yourself, ways, you don't actually share. The old, yeah, that the old ways of thinking about desktop interaction was holding us back. Gag me, gosh. And it's like, no, it's really not. I just, I, I don't know, I get frustrated when all the focus is on the UI and the UX part of you know, the focus is just non-existent. Well, okay, or yeah. it's, I happen as a designer to like this thing, therefore, everyone must use it. You made an uh, allusion to Daft Punk earlier, and it brought to mind, it's not just that they were wearing robot helmets. Their entire shtick, all their music videos, everything, were very highly stylized in a certain way, right? And that was entertaining, and I think that was plenty enough to cover over the fact that we've never actually seen their faces, right? So a highly stylized experience of some kind can be perfect. Uh, mangas have highly stylized experiences kind of built into them. Some of the desktop experiences were highly stylized. A lot of movies, right? Like video games. So it's not just you have a character, but you have a character and he's wearing these huge shoulder wing pads that go up nine feet and he can barely get through doors or something like that. That's his style, right? And so sometimes it just ends up really dumb. Sometimes it really works. And so I kind of feel like when I hear a UI person or a designer or whatever the term we want to use for them, talking about the evolution of the desktop, they're actually talking about, we need to find the next highly stylized experience that people are going to love, right? The next Daft Punk, but for desktop environments. And maybe that's what they're conflating between, like you said at the beginning, desktops haven't really evolved. They don't need to. They do everything they're supposed to, but still there's room for this highly stylized experience. Maybe that's where they're going with this. So I hear what you're saying, but you can highly stylize a desktop without changing the way you interface with it and changing how you actually configure things and how you interact with Windows and all that. I mean, if you go on, you know, Google Images or wherever, and you just search for Linux desktop and you look at a picture, I would say more often than not, you can look at the picture and immediately know what distribution it is because SUSE has a look to it. Fedora has a look to it. Um, Ubuntu has a look to it. Arch. Yes, we know. You can instantly tell when someone is running an Arch desktop. <laughs> oh, there was like a series of five emotions that ran across his face before he decided yeah. on those words. <laughs> <laughs> and as, again, I don't, I don't hate Arch. I really don't. I've used it before on laptops. What, what kind of started to annoy me about Arch was when... Uh, on Reddit, our Unix porn became Arch Linux with a tiling window manager and a pastel color theme. And every post was the same thing. And it's like, what has changed between this? Well, what tiling window manager they're using, which then affects what the bar looks like and what they have loaded into it. And then what pastel color scheme they, they chose. Other than that, they were all identical. Hmm. Pretty much. So this raises another point, perhaps. We're from a generation where we're not trumpeting our every bit. Like in the early days of the internet, everyone was saying, don't share your personal information on the internet, right? So I was raised in my internet citizenry to withhold information as much as possible. And I think a lot of people from our generation, that era, do similarly still today. You know? But the younger generations that came along started using the internet. They had no such compunction over their concerns on private data. And then social media started appearing and now is share everything you possibly can. So later generations, younger younger types, I think in general, are much more inclined to share, and it's a very visual, very 
collaborative even experience on what's what's this, what's that. So perhaps there is somewhat of a generational divide here that we are not recognizing. I don't think that that would explain all of what we're discussing, but it may attribute to some reason why we see some of these need to make changes. Everything's got to be different because everybody else is on Twitter sharing their screenshot of Linux desktop, and I want mine oh, well, to be different. Okay, I, I I get what you're saying. Uh, I don't think it applies in this case because, you know, when you're posting to our Unix porn on Reddit, you're looking for clicks. You're looking for upvotes. And it, when you know, oh, this is what everybody likes, you start to like that thing too. And then you design your desktop to look just like everybody else's desktop that also was really liked. And mm -hmm. you end up with people trying to be unique, all being unique in the same exact freaking way, which newsflash is not, not unique. unique. It's just following a fad. But there's a lot of people that want to be the fad, right? If you're going to be uh, non-unique in the same way, why don't you be first? And then you're the fad creator. And then there's some cachet that goes along with that or something. I don't, I don't know, social currency that goes along with, oh, I set a fad up. Maybe it's just... There's really not it, any... Yeah. There's not any it's social up, currency. It's all up in your there's head. Just, yeah, you just get to brag about how you were the hipster and you liked it before it was cool. But the fact is, no one likes hipsters. We all think they're annoying. I haven't heard the term hipster in, in years. It just... The, the, hip, the term died, but clearly hipster is still alive and well very strongly. Oh, yeah, it is. And, and the thing is, is everybody knows that those people are annoying, but then people try to be that person all the time. And that's just... It, that's a funny quirk of human nature. But... To, to bring it back to desktop design. Popping the stack about 900 times. Yeah, I just, I don't get the compulsion and the continual repetition of the mantra of the desktop has to evolve. Now, this being said, I do think that future software and hardware developments are going to allow the desktop to actually evolve. And the things I'm thinking about here is, for instance, like VR and AR. I think that has the potential to actually be a paradigm shift in how interfaces work. But that is going to be so different that it's not going to be really taking advantage of, well, the top bar is going to be contextual to what application you're in, because that, that's so, going to go away. Yeah, I had a thought there. Um, I don't know what you popped in my head, and you're, you're alluding to, indirectly, you're alluding to desktops where they don't have to change, right? So VR and AR come into the picture. That's going to cause our experience to shift, right? So I had the thought about a car. A car from today drives, it's got the similar drivetrain to a car from 20 years ago, right? Maybe the, the, the body style and everything has been updated because uh, all of a sudden the NHTSA crash ratings came out and everything, like cars, like almost overnight changed because they were not getting good safety ratings, right? Apart from that, the drivetrain of a car hasn't really changed much. Our engines have gotten better. Our maintenance has gotten cleaner. If anything, things have gotten more electronic and less uh, manageable for the average owner. But at the end of the day, we have grafted on certain things to cars which have made worlds of difference, like this uh, range-keeping radar-based climate, uh, not climate, um, cruise control. That has been an amazing shift for a lot of people, that, especially if you drive long distance a lot. So to be honest, I think driving long distance has kind of come down in importance too, since we all can teleconnect. But if you're driving a lot on, on highways and such, then having that range-keeping radar thing is a godsend. The difference between having it and not is, oh, I can kind of 
mean, I still have to pay attention, but I don't have to pay close attention versus I'm constantly keeping an eye on every car on the road and it, you know, it kind of wears on you. The car is still the same. We've bolted on a new system for the input of the car that makes it much more tolerable. Likewise, for AR and VR, the desktop may be the same, but we're bolting on a new input style or a new paradigm. And I think about, I mean, that's not an exact analogy, but I, I think it was a satisfactory switch in domain to try and explore this more, perhaps. So before jumping into the AR, back to the AR VR thing, I want to talk about the car thing that you brought up, because it's actually a very good argument for what I was trying to say oh. earlier. And that is, if you take a car from today, and you take a car from 100 years ago, and you put them side by side, you're going to see all the same basic design principles. You're going to see wheels, you're going to see windshields, you're going to see a trunk, you're going to see, you know, where the engine is, you're going to have a transmission, you're going to have a drivetrain, you're going to have suspension, you're going to have a seat, you're going to have a steering wheel, all those things are the fine. If you took someone from 1920, popped in a time machine, went and got them, brought them to today, and sat them down in a 2022 car, if they drove a car in 1920, they would be able to operate the car today. Yeah, it's going to have a lot more features. There's going to be a lot more things to do. They would still be able to drive it because the core functionality and way you interact with the car itself is virtually the same. It has been refined greatly, but all the core elements are still there. But vice versa, you could take someone from 2022 and pop them back to 1920, put them in a 1920s car, and yeah, they might have to go, okay, where's where's this, where's this? But they would still be able to drive the car. Someone that drives stick and knows how to deal with the gearbox that doesn't have synchro mesh, which is not many people do that anymore. I mean, it's always entertaining to see Jeremy Clarkson try and drive a car from like 1950 who doesn't have synchro mesh, and he can't even get it in gear. I mean, this is Jerry Clarkson, the man who drives cars for a living on TV, and he's struggling to get it into gear. It's very entertaining. So the 2020 person probably is not going to be able to do it. But I, I, I agree with all the points you just made. And I think it is a satisfactory analogy. Satisfactory. Did I say that? Satisfactory? Yeah. Okay. That's good. For some reason, you ever have that thing where you have a word and it just sounds wrong? Bad time to have that happen in the middle of a recording a podcast episode, but yeah. So just to let you know, there were forms of automatic gearboxes back in the early 1900s. Really? They weren't the same things as today. Oh yeah, but they exist. Hmm. They were They were hydraulic thingies that that worked but anyway that's that's getting off into another topic <laughs> we don't way, need to way off well let's try and keep it somewhat on topic for once <laughs> yeah so uh, the thing about the ar vr thing and i i think there's a we like to bundle those together and i know i did myself here but those two are very distinct because yes the big problem with vr is that you only see what's in the headset you don't see your hands and if you're trying to use VR while sitting at a desk and interacting with a mouse and keyboard, it's really difficult because you can't see your hands and you can't see exactly where those things are. Um, yes, there are some headsets that kind of have pass through and will kind of show simulated where, where your hands are, but that's not really the best. And if, you know, if you're playing a game that has joysticks and you have to interact with a keyboard, I'm thinking something like Elite Dangerous. Unless you kind of like really get in the, the headspace and know exactly where it is, y when you move your hands around, there's kind of this like few sec fumbling to, okay, where's, there's the joystick. Let me get my hand back on it. Because you can't just look down and actually see the joystick because where the joystick is in the game is not where your joystick is on the desk. And it's potential that there could be software developments where it somehow maps your devices that you have on your desk to inside the game but then you're going to have the problem of 
A, that's going to be kind of difficult to pull off because of the varying different setups. And game designers would then have to take into account all those various setups because where that space is going to be in the in the environment is it might change based on how someone's desk is laid out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I was just thinking that, too. So if you're in a spaceship where the keyboard, so to speak, would be in the spaceships for you to type on it. Well, that has to be variable based on where you happen to have your keyboard on the desk. So I think what we're going to see in the future, I, I, I lament this is going to happen, but because you have to bring some of re your real reality into the VR, this virtual reality, I shouldn't be using the word reality again. You have to bring your reality into VR to some degree. And so maybe our headsets are going to, maybe they're already doing this. It's got a couple of cameras to try and track. It sees things in the room and it puts them into your, like it's maybe you have this something, you'd make a gesture and it pulls down an overlay and it brings you somewhat into, you can see a rendered environment of what you're like. So you can actually like, oh, I need to move this over here. Or, wow, I wandered that far over there. I'm right on the edge of my safe zone for VR. That kind of thing. Yeah, some of the headsets already have that. You're going to have to spend a lot of time to bring what's already existent into your game. And you may be spending so much time on that, you don't actually spend time with your game with your experience, right? That, that's mm -hmm. something aside. But I think you have to, those cues that bring you back to the real. Living 100% in VR let's say it's 20 years from now, and that's possible. Some, at some point, you still have to come back to reality. You've got to eat, right? You, you have a physical body that you've got to maintain, right? So you have to have some degree of what's real and around you injected into your experience, no matter what you try and do. You can't hide it all. And I honestly think that we could get so far down the rabbit hole here that, well, I don't know, this is going to take, um, i trying to go, come up with a good analogy. Did you see Inception? Let me ask that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's this, Kind of in the early part of the movie where they've decided what they're going to do and they're kind of spooling out. They're looking for some chemist, right? And so they go to some obscure place in the world that I can't remember right now. I'm sure, it's a very nice place in the world. And they meet up with the chemist that they know and he's taking them down to show them the results of some of his compounds that he's developed. And he's talking about these gentlemen that come in every day and spend 12, 15 hours under dreaming together and remark that this has become their reality, right? I think... Well, that's probably where things are going to head to some degree. And I realize now we've got... I think we're a long way away from that because the amount of computing power to be able to pull off that kind of environment and also the, you know, the input is the problem because, I mean, this is where the Matrix comes in because that's why they had the jack in the back of the head so they could actually tap directly into the nervous system so they could actually supply impulses. Because... Until you're able to simulate actual impulses, you're kind of at a roadblock that you can't really get past it making it fully immersive. But I don't think VR is going to be the future of desktops, so to speak. Um, I think AR is far more likely because with AR, you could be sitting at a desk and have your monitors themselves be simulated. Now, right now, the resolution isn't good enough to be able to do that, but... I think it will get there eventually because then you're sitting there at your desk with your mouse and your keyboard. You just don't have a monitor in front of you. You have a headset you put on and through that headset, you see your monitors. That's very so interesting. I like that. If you want, if you want an ultra wide, okay, you just, you, that's the monitor you run. If you yeah. want, if you want two monitors, okay, that's what you run. If you want four monitors, that's what you run. Well, let's be honest. You gotta go buy the, the four monitor module from Samsung to support it, right? No one's gonna get oh, it yeah, for it's, free. <laughs> you gotta buy the token. It's yeah, definitely gonna yeah. be a DLC. 
That's depressing. That way you're still interacting with reality. And then you have, you know, your monitors or whatever around you for the visual stuff. But you're not trying to take the things you physically have to interact with into a virtual environment. Because I think that's where the problem breaks down. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think, um, now I think about it, I was, I was really going deep on how are we going to bring reality into VR. Well, we don't have to with AR. It's already there. We don't have to do all that heavy lifting. The heavy lifting, is, I guess, is figuring where the virtual parts need to be patched into reality that we see. And so necessarily there's cameras involved and in, in recording what's around you. I, I never considered the fact that the screens themselves would be rendered, but I think that's really clever. I'm just wondering what it's going to be like to wear a headset all the time just to work because you don't actually have monitors. You just got go goggles, goggles, whatever, right? That's going to be a little bit weird. Well, I think if this is going to be something that you're using for a long period of time, the form factor is going to change. Um, and effectively, you're going to have something which is basically like a big pair of glasses that has, you know, uh, you know a, a, a WiMAX connection or something to your actual workstation for the actual communication. So you're not having this huge conglomerate thing on your head You've just got, you know, your, you know, those like virtual reality wraparound goggles that old people wear that are actually sunglasses. Right. Yes. Like something, something that like that bulky, but yet it's also not like super bulky that it's actually a helmet you're wearing. Something like that, that also, you know, has a, a, a cord down or something for power supply or, or however. Um, I mean, we used to wear headphones. Hell, both of us right now are wearing headphones that have a, a cable running down and we don't seem to mind. So it's not like we have a bandwidth or a power issue. We don't need to have all this stuff there. You would just need to have a screen with the ability to display a high enough resolution on it. I think that's where things are probably going to go in the near term. But we are still going to run into the same problem of you're going to have designers trying to design UIs for this. Now, I would say the first step would be just simulate screens and desktops the way they are. Inevitably, you're going to have people that are going to go, no, 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 we got to do more. Um, it's easier to start over, frankly. Why would you spend all the effort to try and make the exact same experience you have now? What value does that create? Actually, Why I think that would be far easier. Well, I don't agree. Because all you're doing is rendering a screen and then just painting the X applications into that screen. I get that. And, and that makes a certain logical sense to me. But the resolution you're going to need for it to look like your monitor, like this is a high resolution screen I'm looking at. And I'm trying to think of what the resolution of the AR interface between my eye and where the screen supposedly would be. It would have to be even more high resolution than that, like absurdly high. And there's a, there's a limit to what you can do with the, your, the pixels resolution of your eyeball effectively. That's where the whole retina display term comes from. So the VR headsets that I've played around with and, and used and borrowed from friends and stuff, 8K is kind of the sweet spot from what I've seen. The, the 8K stuff looks to be like it's going to be really close to native. Um, and again, because you would be painting, for lack of a better word, a screen that's going to sit 16 inches or 24 inches away from your face, the, the resolution at that point doesn't actually need to be that fine because your eyes are actually only focusing on one part at a time. And some VR headsets are actually doing this where it's actually tracking where your eye is looking and it's actually putting all the graphics horsepower into rendering that area at high resolution. Now that's interesting. And allowing the, allowing the rest of your field of view to kind of go soft because it doesn't need to be in super crisp resolution. That's really clever. 
I like that. That's, that's a good way to use the, resources. The benefit of that is it's far more natural because that's the way you see all the time. That's what your you eyes see, doing. Yeah, you don't see everything in your world crisp and sharp in your entire field of view. And when you do see that, it's kind of like, what the, what's going on? This doesn't look right. So, like, there are ways to get around the computing issue. The res screen resolution issue is, yeah, that's going to be something that is going to take future development. And, of course, those are VR screens, not an AR glass that you are allowing light to pass through. So there's challenges there. Um, but, again, for the meantime, or for the interim, I think we're still going to be operating on classic desktop interfaces. So where we started this conversation just comes back around to what is the purpose of the desktop and what are you trying to do with it and does it really need to change? And it seems that people want to change even if, which is, okay, historically people don't like change, but it seems that there's actually people who want things to change for any reason. It's called being progressive. Change for change's sake sometimes, but we are here. I see a glorious feature there. What do we need to change about here to make it more like there? And I'm not saying progressive like it's a dirty word or it's a political thing. I'm just, just the simple act of I'm going to try and push us as a society or as a group of people or whatever forward towards that thing that we see in the horizon. That's some component of this, some large component of this. But I think there's a difference between... Okay, i got to figure out how to explain the two differences here. Um, two things because you can say, okay, we want to develop this to be better and that's progressive. Okay. Well, that's iterative development. That's the open source model. That's what we all do. That is completely different from, we're going to take this thing that we have been designing for the past 30 years and it's become really refined. And we're going to throw that out the window because I have some new harebrained idea of how to make something completely better, which that feels like where the designers are getting in, where they want to redo everything. The, all of the classic paradigms for how you interact with something. Oh, no, 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 th th That's the old way. We, we got this new fancy way. It's artistic. But there's an artistic element to it, right? So engineer, as an engineers, we're not acknowledging the artistic or the artistry going into some of this, right? Okay. Let's go back to the kind of the original. I don't, well, maybe it's not the original, but one of the, older Mac design themes or design principles, which is if it's not useful, get rid of it. But don't just throw away stuff because you need to throw away stuff. Now, sadly, that's kind of where it went, where it's, oh, we have to remove stuff because we need more empty space, uh, which useful I'm not a fan of. Perhaps is the question to ask. If you define your target audience and then ask useful for them. Mm -hmm. So if your target audience is, I think a lot of, 2007 and on, a lot of design characteristics were design a thing that can be used by people that don't know how to use the thing. An interface that is so intuitive that even a grandmother who can barely pick up the phone and dial seven numbers in a row can figure it out. And that's exactly my point, Jeff. Okay. Because for going for intuitive, they're throwing out what people know and have 30 years of muscle memory on. That's not intuitive. That's the absolute and antithesis of intuitive when you're throwing out what people naturally know how to use and designing something completely different that now they have to learn specifically learn how to use that new way of doing things. So not a lot of people have 30 years experience in computing or rather unique in that respect. Most people, the average person I would say started getting into computers. Maybe they didn't even own their own computer until like turn, turn of the century, right? 
Okay, that's 20 years ago, Jeff. God, that is. All of a sudden, I just dated myself. <laughs> Crap. Rush of like some, like this yawning chasm of awareness. I was like, oh my gosh, that was 20 years ago. 22 years ago. Oh my gosh. Windows 95 was 27 years ago. Oh my gosh, don't do that. Okay, stop, just stop. No, and, no. and the reality is, that is the desktop design paradigm the entire, well, for the most part, the entire industry has been operating in. Apple has had its little bubble off on the side, but then beyond that, that is the standard thing that people know. Well, funny there, Windows 95 actually cloned a lot of Mac OS classic, Mac classic elements. I can recall the first time we installed Windows 95 on the home computer, and my dad was like, this looks like my Mac that he worked on. And he, he just instantly hated Windows 95. I'm like, no, but it's, it's better. I had never really used a Mac, so I had no grounds for comparison. But they, so they ripped off some design elements from there. And then I don't think it's fair to call it a bubble. They, they interact with each other and they steal stuff from each other. Kind of like how programming languages all kind of evolve towards the same thing eventually. I think user interfaces kind of evolve towards a local maxima of what's most useful for the target audience. And I think that, it's really part of our discussion we have neglected is target audience. We're just, I'm thinking like a person who's been using Linux since the 90s and always, I, I used CDE. I hated it, but I used it. And then I was like, okay, done with that. Go away. I'm going to use the command line instead. And having seen a lot of these evolutions and understanding, wow, that was a really bad evolution. I'm not going to use GNOME for a while until they figure it out or whatever, whatever Ubuntu was trying to do, right? So we have this different background than other people. That's where I'm trying to drive with this point where I got nostalgia bombed there. Um, but it's 30 years of patterns for us. Think about the kids that were born in 2005. A lot of them, for their early formative years where they might use a computer, maybe they were using a tablet instead, like age 10 to 15. If they were born in 2005, they'd be 17 today. So ages 10 to 17, where they're really starting to dig in and use stuff, they're probably interacting more with a tablet. There was some Super Bowl ad a couple years ago where the kid asked, what's a computer? And it caused an uproar, right? Because all the people were all like, well, we know what a computer is. What the heck? This kid, this, this dumb kid doesn't know what a computer is, right? That's honestly something for us to consider. Thinking about target audience, Maybe a new paradigm is not nearly as challenging for someone who's grown up using tablets to try. And maybe some of these design elements are bringing in something from a tablet or some element like that. So I'm generally on board with all the things you've said in here, and I, I rant generally in the same direction, but I'm trying to leave some room for disagreement, perhaps. Room for some things we weren't considering. And I think considering the target audience is one of those things we really weren't considering adequate. Yeah, but when we're talking about a Linux desktop environment, we're automatically restricting the space of who we're talking about quite sufficiently. Are we? I How think people, so. There's more Linux users in the world than ever before. Every Android phone is a Linux system, kind of. Right? Android is, yeah. So Android is uh, based on Linux, and they've drifted. It, it, uses the, it uses the Linux kernel. It is not the Linux user land. It right. does not use any of the Linux desktops. So, yes, you can, if, if you want to play, you know, the technicality game, yes, Android is Linux. But when we're talking about Linux desktop environments, I think you know fair well that's not what we're talking about. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. I'm getting uncomfortable with, uh, we're concluding the same thing and going in the same direction, and it just, some seed of doubt in me says you've got to leave some room for disagreement there. You've got to leave some room for 
whatever. There's absolutely room for plenty of disagreement. I mean, all you have to do is go on Google and search for the most beautiful Linux desktop and click on the first news report. And I guarantee you that it, before you open up the, the article, just take that title and rename it in your head to the most Mac-like Linux desktop and then open the link and tell me that the pictures that they show of the most beautiful Linux desktop are not complete Mac ripoffs. I might actually try that experiment. I'll see what happens. And because it's it's this, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's something deeper there with design people and liking that Apple design. I don't know. There's part of me, this is probably going to catch me some flack. There's part of me that thinks that a lot of people, they wanted to be UI designers and they used to use Macs but they weren't actually good enough to make a name for themselves and to get hired and all of that. So they've realized, hey, I can go over to the Linux space because there's lots of lacking there. So they've moved over to the Linux area and now they're just trying to do what they wanted to do before, but they're doing it on Linux because they can actually make an impact here. So I just envisioned a bunch of people doing the South Park angry guy tapping papers meme, just right there like, oh, no, you didn't. I just think it's to be very entertaining. I think you're right. You are going to get some mail about that. I also had the thought, Perhaps we should table the rest of this discussion and bring in someone that actually does this, because neither of us do design, right? I don't. I don't think you do. Wrong. You actually I do. do. You're right. Yeah, you're, never mind. Let's bring you on. Let's have a discussion with you about this very topic. Okay. Yeah, I'll come on for an interview. <laughs> um, but you interview actually, yourself? I, I could try. Uh, that's actually a good spot to end on, but bef to, to kind of wrap this up, for people that don't know, yes, I'm the, the lead developer and maintainer of the Lumina desktop. It was started by a good friend of mine, Ken Moore. I helped him on the project for many, many years. Um, he has had to step back because of life, work, family, all that stuff. Uh, he uh, he still he still likes the desktop. I still talk to him all the time, pretty much a couple times a week. We still chat. I still ask him questions like, hey, you remember when you wrote this code seven years ago? I'm having problems with it. Um, but I'm, I'm the kind of shepherding the development at this point. And one of the things that there, there are things that I want to do to advance Lumina and to make the utilities and the desktop work better and function better for people. However, one of the core things that I am trying to keep in is that any change that I make is user toggleable, toggleable in that, for instance, I, there's certain features that I want to add to the file manager. But those features are not going to be permanently on. I might have it as the default that they're on. But if somebody wants to turn that feature off and go back to the way the file manager used to be, like the classic way, they can go up to the configuration, they can set that features off, and they're done. Because I don't think I should be mandating the way people choose to use their desktop. I admire that. I also think that that incurs additional work. Oh, it absolutely a lot does. Of projects are they don't want to spend the effort on that additional work because if you've got limited amount of effort to spend on progressing your product, spending it on making it more flexible doesn't really satisfy, I guess there's not really a boss so much in an open source world because it's a lot of volunteer work, usually. But it, it doesn't satisfy the, we're making progress on something. It's really a tough sell. Look, if you're releasing ep episodic software, like uh, we update every three months or something, it's a really tough sell. If of this update, you'll need to see no changes at all. What's the point of the update as a user? Well, because we changed a lot of things under the hood. It's a lot better, and you could, you could try and spend time as a developer explaining what do we change under the hood, but generally it's never well-received. If it didn't change anything, why, are you, why am I hearing about this? What, what's the point of this? I don't gain any benefit from it. So I don't think it's actually that much work because, well, at least the way I kind of envision this for the file manager, I'll, I'll keep the topic on that because that's what I've been kind of focusing on and thinking about the most recently, is if I'm going to add a feature, 
versus, you know, that is above and beyond the basic. In other words, it's a file manager. It has the folder layout, it has, the file, you know, transfer windows and all that stuff. Beyond those basics, if I go to add a feature, while I'm writing that feature, I am checking if that feature has been enabled in the config file. And then I write the feature. So it's like the initial first few lines of code of check to see what is the Boolean value of this flag. If that's enabled, then do this stuff. So then as I write it, it's naturally being written as an option that you can turn on and off. I think that's the exact way to do it, frankly. But like I'm stating before, it takes a lot of extra effort that many projects or developers aren't willing to put in. I admire that you are choosing to do so. I, I, that's another reason to choose Lumina, frankly. But not everybody wants that. I think part of this we're going to pick for you, and we're going to be very opinionated, is because the scope of work could be so large if you're trying to accommodate most people and their, their demands. If instead you opinionatedly decide what the right thing is for the user, you have just cut your workload in half, if not more, because now you have fewer things to test. Okay, you're right. However, if you're redesigning the entire paradigm of the desktop and how people interact with things, I don't think you really have the right to say, hold on, this is going to be a lot of work if I give users options. You're creating the entire bulk load of your work trying to reinvent the wheel. Okay, so at what point do you, and you're adding in features and making progression to a desktop, at what point does checking all the switches make less sense than starting a different product entirely, maybe sharing the same base, but two different views. You get the Lumina Classic and then Lumina Modern or something. I don't know. At what point does the effort become more use, more valuable on separating the projects? I don't know. I think that's up to the project and how big the scope is. Um, and uh, if, and this is a big if, if you have written your software in a way that it is not an absolute nightmare of spaghetti. It should, and the big air quotes around should, it should be easy for you to pull out the core things and release that as a classic while you continue to develop on, you know, going forward. Um, what do you got against spaghetti, huh? It's quite a good meal. Uh, pasta has too much, too many carbs. I'm, mm. I'm sorry, but that's, that's what it boils down to for me. Carb hater. You're a carb hater. Well, it's no, it's just that if I'm going to have carbs, I, I want to have like cinnamon rolls, man. I want those carbs to count. <laughs> or ice cream or something. Yeah, or ice cream. Like, jump in first into the carbs. If, if I'm going to have carbs, I want carbs I'm really going to enjoy. And I just don't enjoy pasta that much. Fair enough. Yeah. That makes good sense. Uh, but I'm curious if our listeners like pasta. I bet and, they uh, do. Or if, or if they like cinnamon rolls better. That's, that's the question for this episode. Cinnamon rolls or pasta? Choose That's one. not a fair comparison. Who's going to choose pasta over cinnamon rolls? Who knows, man? I guess we'll find Who out. Who knows? All right. Well, we need to know. Please, listeners, tell us. Pasta or cinnamon rolls? And oh, you take... can't put that kind of flair on it. You got you to gotta let, you know, lay them down equal. Pasta or cinnamon rolls. Amazing cinnamon rolls. Cin cinnamon, whatever. That word. Yes. Cinnamon, cinnamon, cinnamon rolls. It's totally fair. Don't, don't think about it. It's fine. I'm letting you close this one out. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to. All right. You've been no, trying this. No. Uh, contact us. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> Jeff Jeff really doesn't want to close out this episode. <laughs> I just played um, with you. Yeah. We're going to cut all this, right?
No, right? no, we're yeah. leaving this in. No, this is all being left in. The, the last part of this episode is a train wreck. Let's try this again. Well, I there. mean, I'm sure there's people that are going to think the whole episode was a train wreck, but that's fine. Probably so. So, first of all, spaghetti versus cinnamon rolls and contact us. We have many ways to contact us. Again, I, I always like to promote the Telegram and Matrix channels because they seem to be the most active. We have really fantastic conversations in there. In fact, some of these topics, I believe this topic in particular, was plucked from discussions that came from those channels. And sometimes you'll see your points being espoused. And when we do that, we try and credit everybody, obviously. But the, the seed of this particular episode came from those discussions. So you could be in and kind of influence what we talk about if you have something interesting, right? Come join us in those channels. We also have more traditional ways to contact us. You can send twits, tweets, whatever the word is, to JT and myself. You are at Q5Sys, and I am at Yep, That's Mud. We also have the Fireside input. I can't remember what it's called. Is that also like a tweet thing, or is it more like an email thing? Uh, it's an email form. Uh, okay. TheOpinionDominion.org, and there's a thing for contact. Click it, and you'll get the form. Perfect. Right. And then there's also classic email that I seem, seems to be favored by some people. So JT at MindDripMedia.com. Any or and all notice, those ways. Yeah, and notice the email paradigm has stuck with us because it's really effective and efficient, and we don't need to reimagine it. I'm just saying. Uh, but to, it's been tried, but failed. Yeah, it's been tried and failed. In sincerity, though, I, if people disagree with me, I am really genuinely curious as to their thoughts. So if you think I'm off base and you think throwing everything out the window and starting over again is, is the way we need to go, like, explain it to me. Give me your pitch. Uh, explain to me why I'm wrong. I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure Jeff would like to hear why I'm wrong as well. So no, I love it. I just just bring it on. Of course, he doesn't always share all of those with me. I imagine some of them come and go. He'll he'll say, "Oh, got some email in." I'm like, "Great." And I just kind of wait, pregnant pause for him to share about the email. Sometimes he likes to ambush me with some of it. No, we cover it all. We just sometimes there's a delay in covering it. True, that's true. Any closing thoughts for you, JT? Um, yeah, don't be a bad UI designer. That's it. <laughs> And I will close with cinnamon rolls. What a weird episode at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>